0: I'd say it was work, but it wasn't. There's times where it's very aggravating, very aggravating. There's times, I mean, there's a lot of times where you just come home, you come downstairs and you tell your wife, I quit. This is stupid, you know, I just quit. But when it works, it's so wonderful. It's so great. When you write something that you think meant something for whatever reason to you, to you, it meant something. Um, to who very few people who are going to read this, it might mean something. Then it's just great. It's so easy. It doesn't matter.
1: Welcome to the Lifelines podcast brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. I'm Marina Aris. And I'm Diane Fenner. And we're your hosts. This is the podcast for book creators, book lovers, and literary ambassadors.
2: Join us each week as we explore the writing life the art and the business of creating great books.
1: Today, we're interviewing Greg Lewin, author of It's a Matter of Trust, How Trust Changes Every Risk You Take and Every Decision You Make. It is a deeply personal journey in which he leans on his investing experiences to help readers learn to better navigate risk, improve decision-making, and elevate their capacity to trust. Greg Lewin has spent 30 years on Wall Street as a technology analyst institutional salesman and fund manager. During his time on Wall Street, he went on to create the American Dream Project, one of the early and successful mentoring programs in New York City. His work was honored by President George H.W. Bush for his service to the community, and he and his program were featured in the New York Times. Greg,
2: thank you so much for joining us
1: today.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: I was fascinated reading the book. And um, just for the people who haven't read the book yet, I'm going to summarize briefly that it talks about your having to deal with a health setback, and your decision was to choose trust as a sort of an organizing principle around how to heal yourself. Um, in fact, one of the sentences that I just have a note of here. We are all prisoners of a lifetime of baggage, and the chance to truly lighten the load is rare. So you took that illness, that setback in your health, and turned it into an opportunity to learn about this topic of trust. Can we start out today maybe by talking about how you came to think of trust as the key factor in making yourself well?
0: Um, It it wasn't... um... There wasn't any premeditation in the thought. In fact, it was not a thought that I had ever considered. In fact, one of the concluding paragraphs in the book was how trust was the... I never specifically wanted to get married and met a girl that I decided it was really tough to move on from. And as I deliberated for a long time... The thing that finally made my decision for me was understanding that trust, she was the first person or a woman that I was ever with that I trusted deeply to talk to about things of great importance to me, and that I decided I couldn't give up. But interestingly, when I thought about that, because that was factually how I went through the process, when I thought about it, I dispatched it as a one off answer and not as part of an answer to a, in a much broader context in my life. So although my life, like everybody's lives, has interesting challenges and ups and downs and all that kind of stuff, I would say everything was going fairly swimmingly. And all of a sudden, late in my business career, which had reached fairly lofty levels on Wall Street, um, I wasn't making the progress that I should have made. And I couldn't understand it because I was one of the top performing fund managers at one of the elite institutions on Wall Street.
1: What do you mean by that progress, um, more specifically? Um,
0: Very specifically, I was up for partnership and I did not receive it when other people less qualified did. And I couldn't quite understand it because I was very respected, people well-liked. I brought a lot of money into the firm and my... Wall Street's a numbers game. My numbers were better than everybody. So what was it all about? And I realized later on, as I started diagnosing the problem, that it was matters of trust. I did not trust every single person I worked with, nor they, me. And it wasn't dislike. It's an entirely different idea. I came from a background that was mostly black. And if you weren't black, you were Italian from off the boat, you barely spoke English and that two groups didn't work very well. So there was a ton of violence. In fact, back in another era, Walter Cronkite broadcast from our high school about violence in America, using Howard High School as a backdrop because it was so violent and difficult.
1: So, so do you feel that then your early uh, childhood or you know your experience growing up in a volatile environment impacted your sense of trust
0: Without a doubt.
1: So yeah, I I apologize. I didn't realize it.
0: No, not at all. But I was extremely resentful of. uh, In our community, we were surrounded by, in some sides, by communities that were affluent, and, and I so resented the privilege, that was given of birth, the birthright, however one would speak of it. I saw it. I didn't experience it, but I saw it, and I didn't understand. You know, a lot of the kids I went to school with, uh, you know, needed assistance to get meals and things like that, and difficult environments at home. And I didn't understand or I couldn't appreciate why just one group was so different than another. And there was the resentments that that built that never left. Um,
2: that doesn't sound so different from many people, right? No, I, I don't mean, think so. I a think a lot every- of us, sure, have grown up in that way
0: grew up in their own circumstances, right? Everyone has its own circumstances, but come up with these dichotomies in their lives, challenges, bridges they have to cross, um, that you do, but you don't really completely fully understand the difficulties of the attachments that you create. So I, I moved on from this environment, went to... Um, a competitive college where I was ill-prepared then got a job on Wall Street where I'd never heard of a stock or a bond at the time when I got the job and saw people making all this money. And there's many parts of me that wanted to be part of that. And I did participate, but there were also many parts of me that couldn't stop being resentful. So in fact, going back to the first question, I on Wall Street it's in certainly in managing people's money, it's a numbers game. You know, some guy's up 20%, someone's up 21, 21 wins, as long as everyone's ethical, which is clearly a challenge, but we won't we won't get into that subject at all. <laughs> right. Let's assume they were all ethical. Um, and um, and the 21 wins for all kinds of reasons. Customers are better served and all kinds of things. But when I built the the American dream project, my mentoring project, I spent 50% of my daily life at work, working on the project. So I was not even at work half the time, but my performance was better. But I think people thought I wasn't one of them.
1: Because you were doing this Because I
0: was doing other things. Well, it didn't look right. My desk was always clean. I wasn't in my office half the time. I'm pretty black and white sometimes. And I thought, get the best numbers. You, do, you know, that's what it was about. I was always ethical, always well-considered. And I performed for my customers who liked me, very loved me, whatever, as a, as, a, as a performer. And yet I was not rewarded in the firm because I think I was different. And I think the difference, which is a fundamental of trust, because trust is all about risk, was they didn't trust me in a way that they couldn't even express because there was no answer for why these things happened, And I got very confused by it. I didn't understand. It was later on when, later on where I, when I stopped working before I wanted to stop working, partly because of me, because I couldn't find a, I couldn't find a partner that I could trust that I wanted to be in business on Wall Street, because I harbored in so many of the things from my past that I couldn't completely let go. These people, both people were different to me. I was I was in Wall Street, but not. I was of a tough neighborhood, but not anymore. And the way I, my piece came in the program with the kids because I was building structures where they were working on in big organizations. But I was, I was up on 110th street working with kids that I could talk to and I could be with that. I cared about what happened to them.
2: So the people in the firm saw you as some sort of an other, not a member of their group?
0: I think so. I think that's the way I analyzed it. But then I went back. I apologize. Go ahead.
1: No, sorry. And I'm, I'm thinking about how you can translate that in a more universal way, meaning that is it then true or does it make sense to think that most of us, when we have an issue with trust, it's because on some level, either we don't fit in or others perceive us as not fitting in is mm-hmm. that kind of the the message that that you came to conclude I
0: think it's the, the 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 interesting thing about trust is it's the broadest context of the human life so if you read about the human life it is so complex we have inherited traits and genes and biology right we have acquired characteristics from our mothers and our fathers and their mothers and fathers and how they were raised and brothers and sisters was I born in New York city or North Carolina, you know, all of these things, these broad contexts, we have predispositions to health. We have predispositions to, um, anger. We have predispositions to depression. We have so many predispositions that create our broad human context. And it's from this broad human context, that we observe the world and then decide how we can take this broadest context and what we see and achieve goals and aspirations. And the magic of that whole thing is trust. It doesn't have a specific name. In the biology of, of human beings, there's a thing called the stress response and the stress response we get when we see threats or even challenges or opportunities and a whole biology kicks in. and. And from that, we get risk equations and, and reward equations and all this kinds of stuff. But did you ever take a, an exam when you were back in school and you see the answer, you know, A, B, C, D. You pick B. You know it's B, but you don't circle it. What do you do first? You look up at the ceiling for a second, right? Something's checking. Do I trust what I've come to the conclusion? Decision-making is bridging uncertainty. Everything, if it's, if it's not uncertain, then there's not a decision, because if there is certainty, then it's simply a fact It's not a decision, right? right? To get from here to that street, that is not a decision. I know it's the only way is up through that staircase. That's the only way I can get there. What gets us to bridge that uncertainty? It's when we think of it in the context of what we hope to achieve. And when we are thinking about things, a simple thing like getting across the block is not really much of an achievement. But when it is of great personal consequence and matter, voting in an election, we bridge the uncertainty with trust. So trust is actually the catalyst from our human potential to our human possibility.
2: So I just want to bring this into a more concrete level. Yeah, I know I mean I towards,
1: help. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the, towards the end of the book, you started listing very specific techniques that you used. Right. You talked about charity work mm-hmm. and you talked about, um, I think you talked about meditation. Yes. Yeah. So um, can you tell some stories about things that you did to build up the trust that was in the way of your goals.
1: Actually, and just to, cl- to add to that quickly yeah. is, is, is the trust that we're talking about then beginning with oneself and then moving on to others or, because I imagine that, right. There are two levels of trust at play here. And so when you answer, uh, Diane's question, I guess, if you can uh, clarify. Well,
0: those uh, are both good questions. I have to start with your question and then travel to your question. Um, Nobody knows who I pointed to because this is a podcast. (laughs) Um, Keep the mystery. That's right. Keep the mystery. But the most interesting thing about trust is it's all self-referential. We think about it because it is truth that trust is the essence of all connection. And most people, if you write books, will write books on how do I judge whether I should trust you guys? How should I trust? It's always trusting the other. And what we mistake, actually, is it's really not about the other, it's about the self. And why is it about the self? Because it's the predisposition to trust. So I call it my in-house attorney. So I'm going to use, I'll go to an example used in the book. If 10 people gave me 10 stocks to buy, and every one of them was a loser, and the 11th guy walks up and says, Greg, I have the best stock you've ever seen. Am I likely to buy it or not likely to buy
2: it? Definitely not.
0: Right. And let's say number 11, is the most trustworthy person you ever met by some kind of measure. Mm-hmm. But it's not about him.
2: It's just it's about, about what me. you had become used and habituated right. to. Right.
0: If I want to hire a plumber from my house and I think, and I'm going to have a party with the most elegant people ever imagined, I might look at every plumber that comes through. It might be tough. It might be a big hurdle before I choose my plumber. If I'm renting an apartment, I'm moving out in a week and I couldn't give a damn. First guy who walks on the, is good enough for me. I'll trust you. Go ahead, fix it. I don't really care. It's about us. It's the hurdle rates we accept in our lives. We are not people, there's some objective qualifications. So to to segue to you, The question about therapies, Mm -hmm. treatments, is what I realized in the process that it was understanding self Mm -hmm. that was the far more powerful subject rather than understanding other. And that's where the book differentiates from other books, because most books are figuring out how to figure out the other and fit him in with you. But if you're not prepared or predisposed, it doesn't matter how qualified, how attractive, how intelligent, it doesn't matter. If I'm not predisposed to that, so meditation, things like that, so great thing to begin understanding your body. The beauty about trust, again, yeah, I know I'm loquacious,
2: <laughs> so I,
0: I don't know if that's a good thing or a. That's
2: a it. very good thing. But
0: you'll you'll figure out what to do with it or do nothing with it, but um, the interesting about trust is because it's probably the most comprehensive expression of risk taking, human risk taking. Risk is biological risk you feel, right? You're doing something a little risky. Your stomach gets tight. You might sweat. Your skin gets sensitive. Your mind starts, right? All that stuff is going on. It's very, very biological. Self-awareness can begin to teach you when your biology is setting you up for augmenting risk. What do I mean by that? So I'm comfortable amongst black people. That's how I grew up. Those are my friends. If I see three large black people persons at 12 at night, I don't flinch. You may not want to flinch, but you might flinch. You have a predisposition. Is it warranted? Maybe, maybe not. You'll have to figure that out. The more interesting thing is, do you understand that that predisposition exists?
2: So for you, it was important to note to, to watch yourself to
0: understand my biases to, to note to your understand own reactions, the way I respond to things, which are very, they may not be traditional because my background was not traditional, but maybe the people in my firm on Wall Street really could read that I was sensitized to not really being comfortable with what they said, even though traditionally, why wouldn't I be? It you made were, sense. I look like them.
2: Yeah,
0: I, sh- I certainly you acted like them. Team, you were on
2: their team, but you were not one of them.
0: And they could smell it, and I didn't understand it. Mm. And as I began to understand those things, all of a sudden, maybe this guy who is really rich and a bit arrogant, possibly the most charitable, intelligent person I ever met, but I wasn't going to give him a chance
2: because you're just
0: have, as biased right? as being biased against some person of color or something. Like it's just, it's just my because reverse because it's, reverse. Be, because it, it's never reverse because it's only about you.
1: Oh, I see.
0: Right? I see. It's about you. It's not about the other. And so the beauty of 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 meditation, the beauty of self awareness training, and I'll give you an example of this. Oh please. Which I've only had one
1: mm-hmm. in
0: my whole so far. Um, and it was to begin to understand the self. That was one of the big exercises. So a lot of the exercises were beginning to see myself feel myself and one time recently it was last summer actually that i ever did it to the extreme that i want to aspire to i'm walking down park avenue with my wife holding hands i'm not so touchy feeling so we're holding hands that means it was a really good night and i remember it was a summer <laughs> night and it was like 75 degrees and we were talking and laughing and having a great time and i don't even remember what we did i just i can see that night i can see what where we were I take a step. You ever think of running your finger down Venetian blinds? You know that feeling? Sure. I felt it head to toe. I take a step. I felt I felt this rush of kind something. Jittery. Something go from head to toe. I said, whoa. And I took a second. I said, what was that? And I looked around. And we're still holding hands and walking. We were looking around. Off to my right, I wasn't. It was, if I'm looking at you, it was. It was not in my vision. It was out of vision. But I did this. I looked around. I just was the very building that I worked in. That didn't make me the partner of that firm, and there was a lot of anger there. I looked at it. I went, "That's it," and I said, "I don't have to be angry about that anymore." Same Venetian blind. Body relaxed. We kept walking. I didn't say anything to Lisa until the next day. And you know what would have happened? What would have happened is within three feet, five feet, one block, Lisa would have said something like, so wasn't that a great dinner? And I would have said, it was so good. And she'd been totally taken aback. Do you ever say something you don't know why it came out? It doesn't make sense. You're listening to yourself say it and you're saying, why did that happen? And there's a distinct biology. And it was the one time that I was so self-aware but I was able to correct something. I don't know what that whole exercise took. Six seconds, one second, three seconds. And we had a wonderful night rather than a night that might have gone in a slightly different direction for no reason of hers or mine alone because I was completely unaware of it. That's where you can get to, which I can only, it's my own one experience. I'm holding on to it very dearly because that is what I aspire to, to understand my body so, that my decisions to take risk, to trust, to make decisions that are the most important decisions in your life are so much more clear and uncluttered. And that's what the book is trying to get people to think about.
2: Well, one of the exercises I thought was very interesting meditation is something that is becoming more and more mm, very a topic. But you had something called morning pages, which is where you said mm-hmm. that when you wake up, you start writing, then you don't read it and you throw it away. Yes.
1: Isn't that like taking the Julia Cameron exercise? Have you heard of don't The, know the that Artist one. Way? No. The Artist Way written by Julia Cameron is about well, one of her exercises is to write three a long hands pages every that's morning, morning pages, right? Those that's are the morning, morning pages. pages, but it sounds like you do something else.
0: I like, no, well, there's other things, but that's, but that, that's a process that we process so much in our dreams and in our night. And so you, 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 you're aware of it, right? There's so much going on. I, I forgot. I, I knew so much more about the biology of sleeping, which is very complex and very mis, not misunderstood, not well understood scientifically yet, but some, we rearrange all our memories, when we're sleeping, it's really productive, product, reproductive, productive. <laughs>
2: that
1: we
0: well, actually, some days it's reproductive It could too. be reproductive. That's right. But we actually reprioritize those things that are most important to us. And so there's, it's going on in dreaming. It's going on in REM sleep. There's a lot of complexity going on. I don't understand it. I've read about it, and I appreciate it. This is a way. And of course, if you think about it one could claim creativity. One of the seeds of creativity is how you organize your memory relative to your experience and observations. So if your brain is active in sleep, rearranging the seed of creativity, would it not be interesting to just hear what it has to say? And so this was a process that just sort of lets a little bit of it out each morning.
2: What was interesting to me was that you throw it away without reading it. Why discard it? Yes, that's
1: interesting.
0: You know, then you're getting... there's. I I mentioned a couple of mentors, and one of them was a friend of mine, Al, and he's... Yeah, I'm a fourth-degree black belt, and he's a jillionth degree, and we talk... But we're also more cerebral about it, not just physical about it. And so it's part of that spirit of no attachments, no attachments to anything. I think there's a validity to that, although I'd be loath to express it intelligently on this podcast.
2: So it's a way <laughs> of sort of separating yourself from caring about the outcome of your actions?
0: Not caring, but
2: attaching. Attaching, yes, I see that.
0: You, so there, you've become aware of this knowledge, but it, it's not that important to you.
1: It's almost as if it serves you once you're done with it. You're like, you do it. It's you there, You allow though. yourself to go through that process of, re, of seeing how you've rearranged something, potentially, and then letting go of it. And then letting go of it, perhaps that's where you're getting the most benefit.
0: That's right. Because you, you, you still have awareness of this information. It's Just as walking down the street with Lisa, I was unaware that that still bothered me over there.
2: It's there. So you're aspiring to get to a state where you are free of attachment. Uh,
0: but he no, on no, to what's no. There are there are things that you choose to attach. I'm a, I'm 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 aspiring to get to a place where I understand all my attachments, where I'm cognizant of them, so I can decide whether to fact with them or hold them consciously, rather than. This is a a big exercise. Most of our decision making, most of our choice, most of our trust is pre conscious, and that comes from inherited qualities that we were just talking about a little bit before.
2: So you're aspiring to make it
0: conscious. More so. There's a reason that things are pre-conscious and there's a reason things that are conscious and they both serve important points, but I'd like to more um, rationally or cognitively choose more of what I'd like to process rather than being victim, rather than Rather than submitting to a prejudice that I have not decided is a worthy prejudice to keep uh, uh, or a bias that is worthy to keep or a habit that is worthy to keep, I'd like to understand it a little bit more.
1: So it sounds like whether we trust or we don't trust, there is a reason that we may or may not be aware of. And the closer you can get to being aware of why you trust or why you don't trust, then the closer you can be to improving it sounds like on one level your relationships to others and perhaps your own life experiences as as it's coming to you because then you know what to hold on to and what to let go of i mean it sounds like there's just this other realm to it other than well
0: well, it's not a realm it's you i mean and it is you actually this gets to the whole big discussion but you are not free to choose you have, your choices are largely made for you just as my choice to not buy the 11th stock was made for me, even though I didn't even process that. And I might, it might have been the smartest guy and the, the best idea, but there's no way that I was free to think about that. And the way I do it in that process, the way you both do it in that process, is cagey and elegantly. I don't say no to the 11th man who comes to me with a stock. I say something like, sure, I'll buy that stock if it'll go up 100% in the next two days. Well, let's see. I don't think it's going to go, and I don't want it. We make questions. We become our in-house attorneys. We ask questions of our choosing, right? An attorney is not interested in the truth. An attorney is interested in asking questions of their choosing to get to the facts of their choosing, right? That's that whole bastardization of the legal system that kind of disgusts you on the surface. And that's what we have inside of us. We ask questions of our choosing to get to answers we have already been predisposed to be interested in.
1: So then what's the point of the exercise of trusting? <laughs> it's almost like it's, a, it's to get fighting there. against ourselves.
0: We are. There are certain things that we predispose to do that are smart. Let's continue with that example. Maybe being wrong in 10 stocks in a row mean I'm not that good at stocks and I shouldn't do them. So our predisposition is Saving me from the 11th loss. Because, Greg, you really don't know yourself very well. This is not your game. You should stop doing this. So there are certain predispositions, survival instincts, all these kinds of things that have been developed for us that are important to the people we are, we have become.
2: Have you had um, some success in bringing about changes that you wanted to bring about in your life? Oh,
0: Enormously. Enormously. Oh,
2: let's I mean, let's hear some of those. Well,
0: it's it's not it's it's not so specific. I, you know, I've learned I've, I've so toned down judgments.
2: Yeah, understanding yeah.
0: the complexity it is to be each one of us. I so appreciate, and I was so quick to judge, which many of us are. Sure. And I've really just stopped, and the more I've stopped doing that, the more I've learned how how easy it is to be generous with other kinds of people or people that you might not. Know. I've also learned that everything, nothing is good and nothing is bad. hundred percent. Nothing is good as nothing is bad. It's all shades of gray. And so in my life, when bad stuff happened, man, did I, <clears throat> I took it hard on myself and I would beat myself mercilessly, mm-hmm. yeah. always taking full shoulder blame now I realize, even when bad stuff happens, that was the greatest thing that I learned about my heart problem. Because I trained every day, seven days a week in the martial arts. And then I would go and work on Wall Street, which is sort of a competitive kind of businessy kind of thing. And then, you know, play with my family a little bit on the side. And that was it. And when the heart went out and the stress was too much, 80% of my life was like cleaved my life because my heart couldn't take it and i decided to not follow doctor's advices and do my own thing which i'm very grateful for because it taught me to, to learn about my body more to regulate my behavior rather than you know the you take a pill because what, what what somewhere there'll be a tagline be the person you want to be be the person you always were right be taller be prettier be stronger right that's why you take the pill I've come to understand that, like for instance, I have tons of friends who are athletes and they're all breaking down because they fail to understand that 60 is different than 50, which is different than 40, different than 30. And there's a reason for it. And so my heart regulates my activity, teaches me when I can be more aggressive in my practices and when I have to be more gentle and cerebral. And that is probably a very elegant passage for a physical person rather than remembering the physical person they were and holding on and attaching to that. So there's there's so many ways. You know, we could talk about cosmetic surgery. We could talk about all kinds of things that we do that are are very difficult attachments when we understand them. And when we understand all those attachments, we understand a lot more about trust. And we understand a lot more about trust. We make better decisions.
2: Well, and it sounds like ultimately you're happier.
0: The first time I've ever been happy.
2: That's pretty impressive.
0: It's real, you know, and I don't mean that. I don't. Everything was always what's next for for years, and now I'm completely comfortable with what is. I'm not always happy or anything. That would be awful. <laughs> that would just be awful. I'm just saying I was a person that didn't spend a lot of time wasting time on being happy, right? And because whatever was was. It was done.
2: You were very achievement-oriented. All the
0: time. And so... And my, my family was not that way. They hated that about me. They used to call me like, you know, like like, like, a, like a Nazi. Uh, you know, I mean, I come... Bleeding heart. We're so far to the left of bleeding heart. It's not even in the game. My family. And, you know, there's a reason why we stayed in Westbury. Because that's where we should be. And
2: um, You did not want to move up into the privileged area. We
0: didn't want to do anything.
2: You know, mm. we wanted to
0: stay there, and that's where you're supposed to be,
2: mm-hmm. and
0: you're supposed to be helping. And you're supposed to be. You know, where's <clears throat> am I? You know, I wrote about it in the book. My mother was like marching orders, you know, and so it was. It was interesting. They 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 did not breed this, this competitive, angry, aggressive, sort of negative attitude, uh, never enough person. That was not. From the way I was taught or bred or anything, it was fascinating.
1: But- yeah, and it's it's interesting because in the book you you specifically state that it's not a memoir, and yet you you paint a rather I think endearing and honest um, portrayal of your father and mm. and and their experience um, in starting a business during a time when they weren't financially really in a good position. Right, um, and and I just find that interesting because. It seems like you go through a very personal journey on the page. Mm-hmm. It's about you. It's about growth. It's about acknowledging so many different things that you've gone through to get to where you are. And yet you don't consider it a memoir. I find it so fascinating.
0: Well, it's not a memoir because, I mean, as I wrote, so many of the most important people in my life are not mentioned. My wife is barely mentioned. My children are barely mentioned. I'm not accepting them. They just don't have anything to do with this part of this journey. And I, when I went back to understand why I got to this place that got me depressed and angry and isolated for a number of years, why I got there and I went back and thought it through and I found this germ, this seed called trust just by going from the first, I mean, going back to nothing, talking to my mother, my father's past, but my mother, my sister, family members, friends, and just saying, what was it like? What was it, what were we really doing? What were we thinking about? Why were we choosing? And I just said, I'm going to start from day one, and I'm going to go to the end. And when I figured out it was trust, it stunned me. And then I, then I started mapping out all the examples where I thought where trust made choices for me because of my predisposition to or not to trust. And I began to see a roadmap of my life that I thought was pretty accurate.
1: Right. Yeah, and I still have you having s- said that. I still, on some level, feel and and it's not because I'm trying to box this into a category at all. It's just that um, as a memoir writer, I just feel like what you're uh, explaining is on some level still a memoir, which is fine. You don't have to categorize it. I just found it interesting that mm-hmm. you, as the person who wrote this book, felt that it wasn't that. Um, but if if it's okay, I'd like to segue a little bit into the process that you know, this process that you went through right. to get to where you just said, you said you had a road, you got to a roadmap. You were able to identify trust as the thing that you wanted to write about. So, so tell us a little bit about that process. Um, because some of our listeners may want to approach a book and not write a memoir, but right. maybe write something um, that can help other people with a very right. universal experience. So what, what was your process for, for getting to so?
0: the process was a not to write a book was to do therapy. And when you are uh, depressed or sad or lonely, um, it's um, being with other people is difficult. And so you become (laughs) very isolated because you, you're very fearful. You're very, it's, it's, you feel very vulnerable. And fortunately, a long time before this, 20 years roughly, um, yeah, well, it was 24 years ago, uh, when we were having our first child, um, we decided that we should, my wife and I know something about the religion that we are. And because neither of us were brought with any background in that of any, and so we started taking courses on theology and, um. That led to all kinds of different scientific pursuits for me. So, we used to read the same books. We'd hand the books over and we'd share them. And soon thereafter, my wife decided everything I read is so boring that it's insane and she wanted no part of it. But this stuff just really attached to me. And I've been reading theological and science and biological and psychological texts for years. And I just love it. Just fascinating. Just trying to figure out is there a God? What does it mean by a soul? All those kinds of you know questions that are imponderable.
1: So it sounds like the first step is curiosity and learning, right. self-learning.
0: So when I decided to not, to care about life again, because there's a per- time to you that you want to punish yourself and not care when you're depressed, the easy first step was get back to reading. And because of my nature, the reading had to be very specific to understand why this had happened. That was the first sets of readings that I selected. And so because what I read is above my IQ, I have to take notes. That's just the way it is because I, well, it'll just come out in one year, out the other, these things that I'm reading, reading texts that I really don't belong, I shouldn't be reading. And so I take these notes and then I start meshing them with the behavior and the patterns that I was beginning to identify about myself and start ascribing values to all these things, not, not values in why, when, where, how come.
1: Well, it sounds like you were identifying, identifying patterns, which yes. is kind of what we tend to do naturally when That's we right. want to understand something.
0: That's right. So what I ended up doing was writing pages and pages of notes about these things as I was doing it. So the process began with attaching, understanding, deeper understanding to these things that I was doing and trying to understand why. And, and as I read the notes, they started sequencing kind of in an interesting way because each part of my life had different challenges and different elements and different things to, you know, for this composite that I was building. And I would take notes on these books that I was reading and apply them and and when I got to a new area, I'd say, gee, then I have to read about biology now, or I have to read about psychology now. And and I would take those notes, and then I'd bring them back to the earlier stages. And I was starting to get these more elaborate, interesting patterns that I thought made sense to me.
1: And were you – did you stop working, or had you were you no longer working at that point?
0: Yeah, well, that was – well, the two things that happened was, um, was I stopped working when I was 52, I think was the number – and I just couldn't find an interesting partner to work with anymore. I really, really what the issue was, I just didn't trust anybody on Wall Street. And every time I interview for another thing, I'd say, nah, I don't want to do this. Um, and then you just sort of like isolate yourself. You know, you're the only one who you could be with. It's awful. And um,
1: but at least you trust yourself.
0: <laughs> too much. There was way too much of that going on. And, um, and so that, and then it was just coincident with that that i hit this tree going pretty fast skiing and that took my heart out in this big concussion i had and so all of a sudden that's what i was saying my physical self and my work self were cleaved from my body on the same month whatever it was at the same time and i just fell off a cliff i said you know what's the point now you know why why am i here You know, I just don't see it. And so I went back. You know, my friend convinced me that you're here. Don't fucking give it away and go figure it out. And so I applied what I do well, which is think and analyze and, and be dogmatic and unyielding. And it took a long, long time to learn how to be truthful with yourself. You had to find these things. The opening quote blew me away of the book. I, because I just, and I, it said, you know, I was talking to some very smart friend of mine in the money management business. You know, I don't have a style. Oh yes, you do. It's Greg against the world. Right. Well, that came to me two years into the book, that quote. I hadn't seen the guy for five years after I wrote that quote down. Friend of mine, Danny Katz calls my best friend. He calls, who's not in the book. He's my oldest best friend. We were born together. Talk almost every day. And he calls me up right after I found that quote. And he said, I just met Rieger on the street. We're going to have dinner. You want to join us? I went, you know, I just, I, this quote came out of the nowhere. And, and I said, and I, when I saw him at dinner, I said, did you see this to me? He said, yeah, I remember saying that to you. And I did. And my, as it does now, my body got yeah, shivery. I'm, I'm very cold right now. I can feel it Right, means something to me. And I began to learn about these things. It was a, uh,
1: it must've been an interesting process for you because being an analytical person and having built a career in numbers, right? Numbers don't lie. Numbers are factual for the most part. Mm, right? Yeah. And all of a sudden you're faced with dealing with emotions and these very abstract human experiences. Mm-hmm. That must've been quite challenging, yeah. but it sounds like you put in the work.
0: Yeah. But and, it's, it's uh, barely begun. I was just out to dinner with a friend of mine a month ago, and he's amongst the smartest people I've ever met. And he said, "You always." I, we were talking about things, and he knows that I went through some troubles. And he said, "You always fascinated me." And I said, "Why would I fascinate you? You're just, you're the smart guy." And he said, "He said I. So much of what you do makes no sense to me." <laughs> and one of the things he said is, "You're just so." comfortable with yourself? And I said, I don't think I'm very comfortable with yourself. He said, you're writing a book to try to figure out trust. I don't have any friends who would take on a subject like that. That's so you. Right. You know, that, that you're right, that you think you found something that no one's ever seen before on a subject like that. And I said, it's kind of odd. It's true, because that's the only thing that interests me. I was, I've had trouble, even though I do charitable work all the time, because I feel it's part of my soul. I have trouble doing charitable work when I can't understand how it can, can't save everyone, like when I did this project, I understood that this could save everyone, and then I'm really at my in my element because I just have trouble with scope. I don't see a boundary ever. I mean, I know I'm not the smartest guy or anything like that, but I know I have a, like a certain ability that I can ply myself to. I still have what. What the point of me saying these things is? Is I'm learning, like this guy said this to me last week. I didn't understand any of that about myself. I didn't see myself that way. There's so much more to learn. And until I can strip these layers down, my ability to trust is in some case cornered, it's, it's, it's bracketed, it's not what it may or may not be.
2: You see this as useful in other people's lives? The reason I ask that is because we know on the broader political scene that forming groups, having strong identities, making everyone who's not in your group into an other, not trusting, um, seems to be a pretty hot topic right now. It seems to be probably driving us in ways that are more extreme than they ever have been. I just wonder if you've generalized this beyond yourself to other people and if you've thought in terms of what kind of good it would do or if you've thought in terms of how necessary it is at this point in time.
0: There's probably nothing that better defines our dilemma than the fact that the first instinct is to us and them all over the place it creates these divisions that we see everywhere the you know there's a huge caricature going on in Washington that is everything that we understand that's bad that's why <clears throat> that is why in the therapy section charity is so terribly important because it's like a energy boost for the empathetic self it's, right. a, it's a different way of understanding the self and that's what you know the whole the whole you know anomaly that I mentioned that everybody could have their reason, but the reason why everybody's feeling so isolated and lonely, mostly young people, is because they've lost all of the sensations that are the gateway to trust. Touch, smell, feel. You know, we don't that doesn't come through Facebook. That doesn't come through an internet connection. We've lost these things, these and these are the things that are the building block. That's the first building block of trust after that we'll go into all kinds of scope of self and other to understand so yeah discussing about charity charitable work it's the it's 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 the only thing that that sensitizes us to being the human beings that we were that we need to be that are not separated by labels that are constructed by typically leaders who want to create divisions and and advance themselves competitively.
2: There are a lot of religious overtones in a way. I don't know if you think of yourself as being on any sort of spiritual quest, but you talk about, you know, finding happiness through self-awareness and meditation, which is kind of an Eastern religious thread, and you talk about charitable work and trust, which is kind of a Christian thread. Sure. Um, do you think of this as a spiritual quest?
0: I don't I don't think of it as a quest by any means. But, you know, I, I just had a meeting with uh, a well-known rabbi two weeks ago because it, I woke up one morning, Morning Pages, and um, I realized that all of the Western world is predicated, Western theological world is predicated on trust. And so if you want to go down this little rabbit hole, if we know... Bible, Christian Bible, Jewish Bible, even Islamic to a degree. Um, We begin with what I call children's stories, Garden of Eden, Noah's Ark, they happen to be in many different uh, religious philosophies. And the first, and it's common to all three, the first time that theologically, we have an adult story, sort of adult story, is when God comes down to Abraham and says, um, you're going to be the father of a great nation. Then God kind of drifts away. He just say, picked him. I right, got to assume that God thought it out. Must have had a reason for picking this guy. Thought it out, said, you're the father. And then goes away. You don't, nothing else is said. And then, presto, changeo. I know Abraham was supposedly lived a long life. Um, and now he's got a kid, Isaac. God comes down. What does God say? Bring the kid up to the mountaintop, we're gonna tie him up and we're gonna sacrifice. Why did God have to do that? Did God not do his research when he said, You're gonna be the father of a great nation? I assume he did his research. He's supposed to be smart. So, why did he need test two? Test two was about trust, right? We're gonna give the ultimate test. Now, here's where Here's where my audacity comes in, because when I said to the rabbi, I've never seen commentary about what I'm going to say to you right now. And afterward, I'm proud to say he agreed. I said, do you realize that that test was not a test of Abraham? It was a test of God, because if Abraham was allowed to kill his son as a father, I guarantee you he would never trust God. So God gained Abraham's trust in that act, as well as Abraham gaining God's trust. And from that, all the great liturgy started. It's a big topic, trust. It's a really big topic. The more you think about it, it gets around. Yeah, it is a sort of a- We could talk for a while, i bet. (laughs) Sure, (laughs) sure. How
1: about we we go back into uh, talking about you, uh, producing this book, and I, I find this all fascinating. I don't even want to actually stop talking about it, but unfortunately, <laughs> we have to come back to sure. um, how do we produce work like this? Because I think as writers, a lot of what we do produce has the potential to impact so many people. Right. And if we take it from from that perspective, then um, I think it's good to talk about. Well, how do you approach? The, the the project that you took on because you've come up with exercises you've come up with conclusions you've come up with ways to unveil this issue 90%. and and it takes obviously as you've noted um, time curiosity effort right. um, so 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 let's talk a bit about let's pretend you were talking to a room full of, of uh, writers who've never done something like this. It's
0: an unimaginable
1: thought. What would you say to them? Like what are what because because uh, what I what will I'll stop after this is the the idea that we each have the capacity to change the world one at a time. Like we we may not, but at least to believe that we can by writing a book, right? That can be spread to the masses. So let's just take it from that perspective. You're talking to a room full of people that say, I have a message, I have an idea, I have a topic that I want to dig into, and then I want to share with the world. So let's take it from that perspective. What would you say to them? Their topic could be anything, right? Right. But they're going to embark on a very similar process to the one that you've been through. Right. So how would you advise them to do so? Because at the end of the day, if they can do it, right, then they can make a difference, just like your book can right. make a difference, right?
0: Oh, okay. um, I think there's only one key. It's the same thing that I used for investing. So, uh, and it works the same way. It's impossible to be good at it if you don't love it. It's just impossible. It's too hard. So as an investor, I I grew up doing things like uh, technology companies and biotechnology companies. I don't even know if those were the best ones for me to choose, but I couldn't stop reading about them. So if I got this topic, so if somebody told me to read about Dow Chemical, I'd shoot my brains out and I'd commit Harry Carey, and that stock may go double, triple, quadruple. But it's not for me even though that was my profession to find those double trip, it has to, it has to somehow synchronize with my love and passion.
1: So that's first thing. Synchronize yes. with your love and passion, whatever the topic happens to be.
0: Something that work is effortless. So I can't stop reading about this subject from whatever reason it is. It's just got me. So I read about it all the time. It never bores me. I'm constantly learning. I think there's nothing more important than that. I think the other thing, and again, I am not a professional writer, this is my first thing, is is that I was clear about this, that I was doing it for me. It can't be for other people. I wanted people to love it, and I wanted people to learn from it desperately, just as the charity products, I really wanted a billion people to benefit from them. But you can't expect that
1: it's too lofty a goal it's too much begin with yourself
0: just it's something that is something you have to do you it's it's important for you to have done this
1: okay and what, how do you go through the process of actually getting it done then you've, you've oh, decided what it is you're com- it's you're compelled to do this then how, how long did it take you to produce this book 4 years 4 years okay 4
0: years and and there's a lot of reading that preceded it by coincidence that I would have had to have done if I didn't do that before. And, um, and I'd say it was work, but it wasn't. There's times where it's very aggravating, very aggravating. There's times, I mean, there's a lot of times where you just come home, you come downstairs and you tell your wife, I quit. This is stupid, you know, I just quit. But when it works, it's so wonderful. It's so great when you write something that you think meant something for whatever reason. To you, to you, it meant something. Um, to who? very few people who are going to read this, it might mean something. Then it's just great. It's so easy. It doesn't matter.
2: That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep bringing you great content. For show notes, upcoming
1: events, and to participate in the Brooklyn Writers Project community, head on over to our website
2: at www.brooklynwritersproject.com. Questions or comments? Send them to contact at lifelinespodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Lifelines, the books podcast has been brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. Music for this podcast has been provided by Anthony Nuda of Noble Sense Productions.